Today on State Scoop's Priorities Podcast from Scoop News Group, a sacrifice-free approach to broadband. For too long, there's been a trade-off. The trade-off has been you want the best, fastest speeds, the most future-proof technology, then it required investments in fiber. On the other side was fixed wireless, which can be quick to deploy, but didn't deliver the same speeds. Openness makes agencies more vulnerable to cyber attacks. But actually, what works against the United States, and this goes all the way back to my eGov days at OMB, is we're very transparent in our information. We put a lot of information out there. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world, as well as the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. Miami has access to at least $13 million in a digital wallet because of a city-branded cryptocurrency created by City Coins. One commissioner says the digital wallet is, quote, an excellent source of found money. Another commissioner says they are, quote, not well-versed on the way it works. Commissioners say they're expecting Mayor Francis Suarez to brief them on the money soon. The founder of productivity tracking software firm Transparent Business is offering $1 million to any Russian military officer who arrests Russian President Vladimir Putin as a war criminal over the invasion of Ukraine. The company alarmed state chief information officers three years ago with lobbying efforts in state governments promoting employee computer surveillance. New research out from Mandiant says Chinese hackers gained access to at least six state governments using multiple vulnerabilities, including the Log4j logging tool. StateScoop Tech editor Benjamin Freed is on the story. Ben, what's the latest from this report? Yeah, so this is new research from Mandiant, as you said, uh, and they found that since last May, uh, a Chinese-linked hacking group known as APT41 has gained access to at least six state government networks uh, using uh, a couple different zero-day vulnerabilities. Uh, One was, as you said, the Log4j vulnerability, which was disclosed last December and has been a, you know, is a pretty big uh, moment worldwide. Um, I think, you know, I believe at the time, Assistant Director Jenny Sterling called that the one of the most serious uh, vulnerabilities she'd ever seen. But the other one that the uh, that APT41 has been using is a vulnerability that they found in a piece of software called USA Herds, uh, which is a, uh, a piece of software that agricultural agencies use to track uh, disease outbreaks in livestock. Pretty obscure, but uh, it you know they found uh, a uh, an, ac- an access point, and from there they were able to gain access to uh, you know as as many reported at least six state government networks. Um, and this has been going on since last May, and uh, this is a campaign that uh, Mandian believes is still ongoing. So you say it's it's still uh, ongoing and it's been going on since last May. I mean, how are states, how can states, how can cities, how can these local governments uh, protect themselves against uh, this this type of intrusion? Well, Mandiant has uh, a lot of clients in state government. And, uh, you know, according to what they, the report they put out today, uh, on Tuesday, uh, you know, they were able to help with some of these uh, state governments, uh, you know, Boot out uh, the APT41 actors, but as uh, as our you know as the reporting shows, uh, APT41, this group that is uh, believed to be operated by China's uh, Civilian Intelligence Bureau, is uh, pretty relentless. Uh, they've changed up their tactics and techniques and protocols pretty often. So, um, you know, Mandiant caught one. Uh, Mandiant at one point caught. Uh, 
caught uh, an APT41 actor on a state network, uh, booted them out, but a couple weeks later, they were back. Uh, and the intrusions have been going on uh, as recently as late February, so only a couple weeks ago. Uh, the One of the uh, things that Mandian said about APT41 is that they're their, their techniques are all killer, no filler. So they're pretty aggressive, they're pretty relentless. And APT41, uh, historically, um, you know, a lot of their campaigns have targeted the telecom and semiconductor industries, the gaming industry. Uh, there have been uh, attempts to impersonate the Indian government, preying on COVID fears. Uh, this campaign against state governments is new, but it appears to be targeted and persistent. And, you know, we're going to keep reporting on it, see, see what else shakes out. But uh, it does appear that, uh, yeah, there, there is a, uh, there's been a concerted effort by this hacking group to compromise state government networks. StateScoop's Benjamin Freed on new research from Mandiant. You can read these stories and more on statescoop.com. You can also find links in today's show notes. New this week from StateScoop, a special report on data and analytics. In this report, StateScoop reporters dive into the role of the chief data officer in state government. The report also includes stories about the impact of data programs in states and how cities are analyzing data. You can see the report at statescoop.com. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is consolidating information technology in the nation's largest city. The multiple agencies that touch the city's technology operations are folding into the Department of Information Technology and Telecommunications. That department is now called the Office of Technology and Innovation. John Paul Farmer is the most recent CTO for the city of New York. He left late last year when Bill de Blasio handed over the keys to Eric Adams. Farmer is now the President and Chief Innovation Officer at WeLink, a high-speed internet company. StateScoop's Ryan Johnston asks Farmer why he's focusing even more on broadband. Well, as CTO of New York City, I would often say broadband is essential in the 21st century as electricity was in the 20th. And of course, the pandemic made clear to everyone just how true that statement was. And uh, when I left public service, I was looking for an opportunity to continue to make an impact on the things that matter. And I feel really fortunate to have the opportunity to continue to work toward the public good and the common goal of universal broadband. At WeLink, the mission is to connect everybody with no tricks, no gimmicks, uh, no hidden fees, just ultra-fast, future-proof broadband. The way we do that is through millimeter wave fixed wireless mesh that delivers gigabit symmetric speeds. And that's the key point here, is that for too long, there's been a trade-off. The trade-off has been, uh, if you want the best, the fastest speeds, the most future-proof technology, then it required investments in fiber. Fiber could be very expensive, could take a very long time. Uh, on the other side was fixed wireless, which could be quick to deploy, but didn't deliver the same speeds. And what's so amazing and inspiring and the reason that I'm a part of the Wheeling team now is the ability to remove that trade-off and deliver best-in-class gigabit speeds through quick-to-deploy, low-cost fixed wireless. And you'll be working with uh, Wheeling as president of their city's initiative. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, the goal... The goal is to bring um, bring this technology to the places that it's needed most. And so often businesses uh, are built uh, through a, a trickle-down approach where they go to the wealthiest communities with the new technology. And then over time, it, it trickles through the rest of society. Um, and unfortunately, at some point, somebody somewhere decides that it, it doesn't make sense. Uh, there's no business case to actually serve everybody. So you end up with products and technologies that only serve 
70, 75% of the market. Um, we're doing the opposite. We're actually starting with people who need it most. Uh, our technology is uh, sustainable because of our low cost of production and deployment. So we can deliver this fantastic product, these ultra fast speeds that everybody needs, every family needs to live and, and work from home uh, in this new environment. Um, but we can do it in a way that, that actually is cost effective and makes sense for us and makes sense for uh, the folks who previously simply couldn't afford uh, this kind of uh, product and certainly not this kind of performance. Now, within New York City, where you were uh, a chief technology officer for several years, um, Mayor Eric Adams is trying to consolidate all of uh, New York City's current IT agencies into one department uh, under the leadership of your successor, Matt Frazier. What do you think of that effort? Well, I think that the uh, the new administration and uh, and Matt in particular, who's, who's now the CTO of New York City, I think they've done a good job of recognizing some of the challenges that have existed in the city. You know, a lot of the innovation efforts are relatively new. They were started in the last decade or so whether those are around data, innovation, digital services. Uh, and there's certainly an opportunity to bring them together and make them coherent. Um, I, I do think that there'll be some challenges along the way. And it's really important to recognize uh, that these are not all IT. Um, these are a variety of functions that, that, uh, that need different skill sets and different mindsets uh, to be successful. So while I'd like to see them support one another, I certainly don't want to see any of them lose uh, that that magic special sauce that makes them work so well. What advice did you give to Matt Frazier uh, during the transition period when you were transitioning out of New York City government? Yeah, I, I told Matt, um, you know, I, I don't know if I'll get into every detail of our conversations, but I certainly told Matt that I was I was there to help him to make the transition as smooth as it possibly could be. Uh, and that uh, I want him to succeed as a person, but also as a New Yorker, I want uh, New York City to succeed. Um, he's got fantastic people. That's one of the key things that I explained to him is he's got some incredible talent um, uh, in place and there are opportunities to build upon that. So uh, what, what I'm hoping to see is the city continue to recognize that uh, everything from digital services, the digital reserve that we created to line up technologists in advance to make sure that they are uh, ready. And during the next crisis, whatever that might be, we've actually got people with key skills pre-positioned uh, to jump in and help. Uh, folks who are, you know, in the private sector have day jobs, but have raised their hand because they're willing to contribute. At the same time, we've we've done some amazing work in New York City getting ready uh, to better integrate artificial intelligence and Internet of Things and smart cities tools. And I want to make sure that those uh, continue as well. Uh, those are still early. And I think it's important to recognize that a lot of these technologies uh, are not fully developed. There are questions that are out there. And it's really important for our city government to both uh, to chew gum and walk at the same time to be able to uh, implement tools where appropriate, but also ask hard questions and make sure that we are uh, getting ever better at uh, understanding and using these emerging technologies. With uh, Mayor Eric Adams has been very vocal about his support for uh, emerging technologies in the Web3 space, um, namely cryptocurrency and blockchain. Uh, as CTO, um, as a former CTO, uh, what are your thoughts on cities governments um, in New York uh, and elsewhere embracing technologies like those? I think Web3 is an important space uh, for everyone to be paying attention to. And that includes, that includes governments for sure. Um, we ran a pilot uh, at the end of last year um, taking open data and testing, just testing to see how that could be stored using Web3 approaches uh, like that of the Filecoin Foundation uh, to store data at a, a radically lower cost. Uh, now, this is not an approach that I would necessarily recommend all data should take. Uh, or all city data should be uh, uh, should, should be the way it should be stored. 
But we need to think about how we can take approaches that are both more cost effective, but also achieve some of the ends that unfortunately Web2 has not. We all know that the, the data economy has ended up uh, turning into something that is a, a bit of a monster that's hard to control. And when people uh, signed up uh, for a Web2 approach, they didn't really understand what that meant for their personal data. And a lot of people are looking for alternatives. And if Web3 can provide some of those alternatives, then it's important that we test these approaches, understand what's possible, uh, and ultimately uh, make good public policy around them. John, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, a topic outside of um, city government technology. Um, as a former professional baseball player, um, first, what teams were you with? And uh, what do you think about Major League Baseball's recent rule change in banning the defensive shift? Uh, yeah, uh, this is a couple decades back when I was playing uh, minor league baseball. I was in the Atlanta Braves and Los Angeles Dodgers organizations. So it's been a couple of good years for me with the Braves winning the World Series this past year and the Dodgers the year before that. Uh, had a great experience, got to live all over the country, got to meet amazing people, uh, and got to play baseball for a living, which was a lot of fun. I'm probably a bit of a purist, you know, I'd, I'd like to see, uh, um, I'd like to see the NL keep the, the pitcher hitting. I'd like to see, uh, pitchers not have clocks on how long between pitches. Um, and while I, I probably commiserate with other baseball fans that it's not always the most fun to see somebody, uh, hit a ball really well into a defensive shift. Uh, where you've got a bunch of the players, three of the infielders on one side of the field. I also don't love arbitrary rules. Um, you know, I, I kind of would like to see the players make the adaptations as opposed to the rule makers. And so whether that means the players start working on going to the opposite field and hitting the other way, um, you know, there are, there are ways to beat the defensive shift. And uh, I'd, I'd rather let, this, let the players and the coaches um, spend the time to figure out the strategies and the approaches that would do that as opposed to changing the rules. John Paul Farmer, former New York City CTO, now Chief Innovation Officer at WeLink Cities. You can read more about what he did in New York City on statescoop.com. I'm Jake Williams, host of Statescoop's Priorities Podcast. Next week on the show, Texas CISO Nancy Reynasek offers the latest on the state's cloud vendor assessment model. You can subscribe to the podcast at priorityspodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. The overall number of ransomware attacks against state and local governments may be on the downswing, but the threat that cyber attacks bring remains among the top concerns for state information technology leaders. In a recent op-ed for StateScoop, former administrator of the United States e-Government and Information Technology Office Karen Evans says that while ransomware attacks are complex, the way to prevent them isn't. Evans is now the managing director of the Cyber Readiness Institute, where she's focusing on cybersecurity for small and mid-sized businesses. She tells StateScoop's Colin Wood how agencies can prevent 98% of those attacks. When you think about, well, what does cybersecurity for small and mid-sized businesses really mean? Because there's so, so many nonprofits in this space. We are focused on uh, four core issues, and it is around phishing, passwords, automatic updates, and removable media. And when you take a look at those four areas, if you actually practice it, and in the cyber world, we call it cyber hygiene, you could avoid close to like 98% of ransomware attacks because they are just basic things that need to be done, but they fall under this auspice of cybersecurity and small and mid-sized businesses are thinking like, I don't have the kind of money that 
uh, you need for this, or I'm not hiring a IT specialist, or I can't build out these things, or what does all this mean? And that really is where we step in because we demystify it, so to speak. We take the cyber geekness out of it. And on top of all of it, cost is not a barrier because we offer all our materials for free. And really what it ends up being is a, a commitment of time for a small and uh, mid-sized business owner to go through the materials, but you're not going to be inundated with what I call death by PowerPoint, where, you know, we give you so many technical terms and everything. It's really, there's a lot of short videos that try to break down these really complex things and make it relative to you. Uh, whether you're a five-person shop, a one-person shop, or you happen to be the HR director that they decided that, hey, cybersecurity is going to fall under you. And, and it really tries to um, walk you through what you need to learn and what you need to do as an organization to address these issues. Right. And these are issues that I hear constantly from state and local CIOs, how to train their staff, how to support other organizations. If they're a state CIO, for example, maybe wanting to help a county government, how can state or local governments either avail themselves of your services or alternatively, what could they learn from you? What kind of insights have you, have you gleaned from having done this work? Well, so, um, and I'm glad you asked that question because I've held multiple uh, chief information officers roles right through uh, different federal agencies, um, probably was a chief information officer before they even called them chief information officers. <laughs> I was in the government when the legislation passed for all of this. Um, but, you know, the issues are the same. And this is what is really uh, unique about the Cyber Readiness Institute, right? Like the issues are the same. Um, it's the scale right? It's either a small scale or it's really big scale if you're looking at the entire federal government. But what it really comes down to is human behavior. Like you can have all the tools. You know, If you have a great budget, you can have all these great defense and death types of approaches, but it really comes down to the people. And uh, what CRI is really focused on is trying to change that culture within an organization. And that's really what I've learned throughout my career is that the people are the ones that are gonna make the difference. And so if the people really, um, you know, are vigilant. And, and what I mean by vigilant is I just don't click on every link that comes through in my email because it's convenient for me to do it, right? That uh, I stop and I think about it for a little bit. And then I call somebody or I text my boss and say, did you really send me this request that says, why are you $25,000? I mean, it's simple things like that. And that's a culture change and it comes down to people. And so, um, you know, if a state CIO is looking at a small municipality that happens to run the water maintenance and water services for that area, right, that is critical in that geographical area, these resources are available for them um, on our website. And so we have a cyber readiness program that walks in a person through an organization, but we also have a certification where an individual says that, hey, I'm gonna learn even a little bit more and become a cyber leader. And you go through the certification, but what that really means is, hey, I'm gonna be a champion for this. I'm the one, you know, if I'm a five person organization, I'm the one who's 
who's going to be um, talking to people all the time about, hey, just make sure like this is happening. But for example, right now with um, what's happening geopolitically, just, you know, you guys just you need to be a little bit more careful about when you're reading your emails and things like that. You know, from a person talking to four other people in a, uh, a company all the way up to, you know, the human resources person in a 500 person company is sending out notes saying, just remember, because uh, we're not quite sure how this is all going to manifest itself here in the United States. But, you know, state and local governments, those those uh they have a lot of really great services. Um, our nation state adversaries have mapped out a lot of our critical infrastructure and it comes right down to a lot of the services municipalities run. Right. And that's, I imagine one of the reasons that your work is difficult is because it's really hard to change people's behavior, even if they want to change it. Oh, sure. Sure, exactly. And so that's why, again, CRI isn't, you know, focused on boiling the ocean. We're focused on these four core issues. If you could solve fishing, right, like if we could really um, solve the fishing aspect and then couple that with having multi-factor authentication implemented, uh, ransomware would not be successful. You would you would really be able to prevent a lot of wans- ransomware attacks, right? And then the other thing is um, it's about being ready and it's being prepared. And so, you know, you hear that and you can go, oh, you know, Karen's talking about the NIST framework and you can go through all these things. Or you could really, uh, based on the way that we put some of the material, is like, Hey, what's really important to you? Do you do your payroll online because you took advantage of those payroll services? Uh, If the answer is yes, right? Well, do you have the password? Is it only one person? Is there a backup? You know, how is that working? And the playbooks work you through uh, and the guides work you through. Some of these questions were like, oh, now is the time for me to think about it. Not when the employee has left and moved on to another job. Right. And so um, or now's the time for me to think about my backups and how I store my backups and how often am I doing backups. Now is the time to think about it, not when the ransomware comes in because somebody clicked on a phishing link. And now I have malware. My whole system is locked up and I can't get to anything. And depending on who you are. Right. We saw that on a large scale with Colonial Pipeline. Like you don't want to know that, oh, I never practiced my incident response plan or what is an incident response plan? Right. That's the the wrong time to be asking those questions. Exactly. Exactly. So you mentioned the geopolitical situation. So I'm asking you this because you know a lot of people and you're talking to these local governments. How has the... A Russian invasion of Ukraine affected things, if it has at all, in terms of what we're talking about? Well, this is exactly um, why CRI is doing a lot of outreach, right? Because you watch the landscape and the threat landscape really has changed. Um, and you're not necessarily sure exactly what kind of actions are going to happen, right? And so the the other part of this, and, and our federal government has uh, a very concerted campaign out there about, for example, CISA has out there shields up, which is telling you, hey, you need to be prepared. Let's work through this. Let's be vigilant, right? And uh, the FBI is sharing a lot of information. 
But what could happen is some small businesses or some municipalities, right, or some local governments will say, well, you know, I'm pretty small. It's not going to affect me. Um, But actually, what works against the United States, and this goes all the way back to my EGOV days at OMB, is we're very transparent in our information. We put a lot of information out there. So, for example, on federal spending, right, USA.gov, all this, we have our information out. Um, we, we map out who we give grants to. We say, hey, here's all the federal procurements that have happened, uh, all the way down to like subcontractors, right, subgrantees. We're very transparent. All that information is available. The technologies that we're using, our adversaries can use. It doesn't take a whole lot to map out things. When I was at Energy, the director of national intelligence mapped out and released, you know, declassified information about both China and Russia and our critical infrastructures and our pipelines. Well, when you look at pipelines, water, you know, um, transport like gas, natural gas, oil, All of these, when you start looking at them, they're not underground. And so we publish these maps and we have these things out there. Those uh, systems are run by ICS systems. So that's why you have to be vigilant. You know, the old way of how a lot of this operational technology worked, they weren't interconnected, right? So your operational technology ran one way and your business, your IT ran another way. Well, we've gained a lot of efficiencies and there's interconnections that both groups may not necessarily know. And again, that's what you saw in Colonial Pipeline. There was a connection between the two systems that they didn't necessarily know was there. They said uh, when they testified, they said they had a complex password. But now I'm back to if you had multi-factor authentication on there, it would have been really hard, right, for somebody to crack that. You would have went on to something else. So, you know, that's, again, why we're focused on I'm back to these four issues. If you have multi-factor authentication on these systems, you know, it makes that hurdle a little higher for our adversaries to go through. And that's what you want to do. You want to raise the cost to the adversary so that it's not easy to get into our resources. Right. And let's point people toward the commentary that you wrote recently for State Scoop, which outlines the four, uh, excuse me, the three steps that we just discussed prepare, respond, recover. I think I think I yeah. got that right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they can look at that. That's directed toward uh, local government officials, but of course, good advice for everyone. Is there anything that we didn't include in that commentary that you'd want to say as, as kind of parting advice? No, I, I, like, again, I wanted to echo what Jen Easterly said. It has to be a kitchen table issue, right? Like we just, it's not just the computer people. It's not just the cybersecurity people. It is every home has technology in it because of, um, we have changed because of COVID and how we all interact and what, you know, what is the business office. And so it needs to be part of our everyday conversation so that we are aware and we can manage our risks.
Former U.S. Department of Homeland Security CIO Karen Evans and current managing director of the Cyber Readiness Institute. You can read more about ransomware and read Evans' commentary piece at statescoop.com. This show is a product of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helped put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm your host, Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.